Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Arconnect Sessions. On this episode, we're sharing my conversation with Miguel McKelvey, co-founder of WeWork. The conversation was held last week in New York at the Project 6 by AF showroom to an invited crowd of 75 architects. The event was co-hosted by Project 6 by AF and Designer Pages, and was sponsored by Graf, Julian, Geberit, Caldevi, and Wetstyle. For those of you unfamiliar, WeWork is a co-working startup currently valued at somewhere between $20 and $35 billion, with almost 400 locations scattered around the world in 69 cities. While WeWork wasn't the first company to enter the co-working space, they approached it in a very different way, focusing on creating physical environments that connected with workers and business owners while crafting a culture of super-dedicated members. Miguel McKelvey, one of the co-founders, is an architect by education with a brief work history in the field that includes an active role in the design and build-out of American Apparel's disruptive retail stores in the early 2000s. As a personal friend that I first met while studying architecture together at the University of Oregon, I followed Miguel's entrepreneurial path for almost 20 years. In this conversation, we'll talk about that path and how architecture has played a critical role in the success of WeWork. We start the conversation with his extremely untraditional yet highly relevant childhood. One of the most interesting things, in my opinion, about Miguel is the way he grew up. He grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which many of you are aware is one of the more crunchier, hippie towns in, in the United States. And not only that, but you were raised by a, uh, a group of women in a communal living environment your mom, and I believe a few of her friends. And given the fact that you are now dominating the world of shared workspace and co-working, I can't imagine that there isn't some kind of connection between the way that you grew up and, and what you're doing now. Could you tell us a little bit about your uh, growing up and what that meant and how you perceived space and, and work as a member of a uh, communal living group? Yeah. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here. I was saying to Paul earlier, one of the main reasons that I like to go to events like this and is that I get a chance to reflect on, you know, what it all means. And when you're, as everyone knows, when you're working really hard, the chance to step back from it for a minute and think about how it all happened is fun. And so this one is one of the ones that I've been trying to figure out a lot. Like, what are the things that happened in my childhood and my experience as a kid that are affecting whatever this formula is that we happen to come upon that works so well today? And for me, the, I think one of the most important things is that my family was a family assembled by choice. So rather than the normal, whatever, biological blood relationships that determine family, traditionally, the group of women who came together to raise kids all did it because they were friends and because they shared values and ideals. And they really, it was sort of like a mini movement. They explained it as they wanted to like, get back to the land. They wanted to detach from the normal societal structures and expectations, and they wanted to engage in some form of spiritual connection, not with any dogmatic or philosophical structure, but more just finding themselves. And in that, there was a lot of people who came in and out and like connected to that energy. And I think for me, I became very comfortable with relying on this community of people as my sort of family support system and network rather than having like the traditional setup where it's like you have your home and that's where you are most of the time. So for example, I was just home this last weekend 
and I had a lot of the people that I've grown up with. And so I was there with my girlfriend and it was super weird for her because a whole bunch of people said to her, they're like, oh yeah, Miguel grew up in my house, you know? And they all had all stories about me that sound very much like parental in a way. And that's the way it was. Like I was, my mom was just a single parent. And so again, from a structural sense, that was my only like formal relationship. But then all these other people, I was just in and out of their houses at varying times all the time. And I really relied on all of them for different needs in different ways. And I think that's, you know, shows a lot the potential of community and it reflects what we're trying to do now, which is to unite people by choice, you know, unite people around shared values, unite people who can depend on each other, you know, in a network, um, in an ecosystem. It's obviously much larger, but it's not dissimilar in the arrangement. And I think that we're still learning what that all means, but hopefully it works in the way that it gives you this really solid foundation of trust in a larger group that then you can like spring forward from and do all kinds of different stuff. I think another really fascinating thing about your childhood is that there was clearly some type of entrepreneurial genes running in that community. Your mom and her friends, for example, started a, a local paper, which then turned into the Eugene Weekly, which I recall from when I was at the University of Oregon. And you're not the only successful entrepreneur from the group of six kids, I believe. But there's a, as I read recently, there was a, one of the other girls that you grew up with has formed a nationwide chain of, of fitness studios. I mean, it's unusual for such a tight-knit group of friends to become so entrepreneurial from such a kind of a natural kind of salt of the earth type of, of foundation. Did you feel like you were supported or pushed towards independence or entrepreneurship from an early age? Yeah, that's an interesting thing to try to figure out because I don't think we had that language. Like we didn't know entrepreneurship wasn't part of the dialogue, but I think it was more so like when my mom's group of friends were like in that back to the land disconnection from society, they realized that there were benefits to being connected to society. Like, you know, school system is important when your kids start to get older. So they made they made a decision to like reconnect. And I mean, they're all like well educated and so but I asked my mom, I was like, but you you know, I mean these they're literally like I mean, before we had the words, they're like freegans and like, you know, they're like dumpster diving behind grocery stores for food and trying to I mean, they're really pretty hardcore in the way that they were existing. And so, but then when they had kids, that becomes much harder. And so I asked my mom recently, I'm like, so how did you, you know, what did you do when you wanted to re-enter society? And they're like, oh, well, you know, we were all smart enough to like fake our resumes. So we basically just completely um, crafted like fake resumes and like, you know, went around and got jobs. And, and I think so it was more like this necessity. It wasn't that they wanted money or success. They just wanted to do something that supported their lifestyle. And so when they started this newspaper, it was actually called What's Happening in its first incarnation. And it was just basically a like events newsletter in town because they all wanted to get their friends to come to the same events. And um, it was hard to communicate. So they were like, we're going to be the convener of the people that we like to hang out with. And so we'll start putting all the events and distributing that. And so it was very organic. It wasn't like we're going to start a business. It was, okay, well, now we've got the newsletter. People want to advertise in it. We'll put their ads in and then, oh, wow, that's actually something that we could make money off of. And then it grew from there. And I mean, I think that that's part of, again, the difference of the way we look at things today is that entrepreneurship is often defined as this very narrow thing. It's like you want to start a business. A lot of times you're supposed to grow 
you know, and your definition of success is how fast you grow or whatever. And especially with the takeover of like technology companies, the expectations get pretty outrageous in terms of what it means to be successful. I think that getting back to the feeling that you're an entrepreneur is doing something that they want to do, that they're connected to from a values perspective, from a passion perspective, from a lot of it, obviously in design. I mean, people in design are lucky because they usually love what they do. And to me, that's entrepreneurship. Like if you're doing something that you love, that you, you feel passionate about, whatever the structure is, that to me, what's way more interesting. So that model, I think it was there for me. Like, could you ever work in a regular job if all the models you saw was only people following their passion and doing something that they really feel is an extension of their true self, their authentic self? That's really the model I got more than anything. Okay, I'd like to fast forward to architecture school. One of my most clearest memories of you in architecture school was that you were part of a a very small group of students at the time, which I considered myself to be a part of you, Robert Marvin, Midhat, Delich, who kind of rebelled against the formal teachings at the University of Oregon, which really relied on Northwest vernacular architecture. We were really much more interested in pursuing the capabilities of architecture, I guess. And I remember you in particular were highly influenced by Frank Gehry at the time. So that said, I'm, I'm wondering what it was that, that initially drew you to architecture. Was it something that you had been thinking about throughout your life? Or is it something that kind of came to you as you were picking a major? Because you, you clearly brought a lot of thought into the practice and broke out of that proverbial box that the program offered. Yeah, that's actually an interesting story. So I had never thought about architecture at all. And I was going to Colorado College, which is a small liberal arts school. And I took like economics and calculus in the first like, but they have like a block program. So you do one thing at a time for a month instead of having multiple classes, which is an awesome format for a school. But when you're in something that you don't like, it's painful. So if you have economics only for a month, it sucks if you don't like that stuff, which I didn't. So I immediately like broke out of that and like, I'm taking like sculpture because I just want to break of stuff that I hate. And I ended up taking a sculpture class. And one of the professors said to me, wow, your sculpture is really architectural. You should think about that for graduate school. And I was like, oh, wow, that's an interesting idea. And he said, and University of Oregon has a really great program. And I mean, he didn't even know I was from Oregon when he said that. So it was just purely coincidental, but it planted that seed in my mind of, oh, okay, that's something I could do. And then I realized I was pretty unhappy. I didn't, that school wasn't really fulfilling my needs. I was also playing basketball at the time and our coach left and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't working out for me. So having that in, in my head of like, that's a different opportunity. I went to the library and just like picked up, I think the first book was a Corbusier book. You know, I forget the names now, but it was like kind of the machine for living book, like explaining his approach. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but I read that book. And from that moment, I was just like all in and I think I had my own self-study for the entire summer. I went to the library every single day. And I think I became the biggest consumer of architecture. At least in our school, I know that I was as diligent as you possibly could be and just like consuming every single image that you could get. And my, I have a super strong visual memory. I don't remember what people say almost at all, but I have almost like a photographic memory for, for visual stuff in the sense that if I put something on a eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, the way I would like learn for a test would be write all the notes on one sheet and then memorize the way that sheet looks. And then I could like draw that information whenever I need it. And so because of that, Frank Geary at the time, 
his images were the coolest. The thing I liked about Frank Gehry was that he wasn't so far out at the time of doing the more theoretical stuff. Like he was actually building and he was mixing the like raw exposed construction, you know, like we have over here with the studs and stuff showing with some more formal elements that were um, weird shapes and stuff. But those images were just the most compelling to me. They were the most interesting. They were the most challenging. They were like the hardest to figure out how he was making that work in the real world. And um, so that was one that was like, I mean, I just found that to be powerful. But the other thing was that my background, I grew up in Eugene, which is where Nike basically started. I mean, the headquarters was in, in Portland, but the track side of it and the Bowerman side of the creation of the shoe and the design, you know, came from that. And so I was super interested in how you use brand to influence you know, brand and culture to influence commercial success. And so I actually had a super weird moment. There was this time when um, Nike was doing these ads where in Rolling Stone or whatever, Time Magazine, they would just have a shoe and a phone number. And it was like 1-800-whatever. To me, that was crazy that you could just, no other information other than a picture of a shoe and a phone number. And they would expect it to be so compelling that you would pick up the phone. You'd be so interested in whatever's behind that phone number because of the shoe that you'd literally proactively call the number once you call the number it was kind of and eh, it was like some sort of i don't know basketball player talking with spike lee about it wasn't that cool but just the premise i thought was amazing and so i actually went to my architecture studio teacher and i showed it and i was like this is what i want to do i want to design something that's so cool that i can put it in like rolling stone magazine and people are going to call me like that's my business model for how i'm going to be successful as a designer and the dude like was like he looked at me like it was disgusting. Like his response was like, I was just doing something horrible to the whole whatever practice because he was like, no, you know, architecture doesn't work that way. It's not commercial. You know, it's not about brand. Like you would never do that because it's all about your relationship to the client and all this really important stuff. Um, so, <laughs> but for me, it, that wasn't the compelling part was always really at the time was that image and that link to how are you moving things through the result and how compelling that result is. And Gary was the one winning that at the time. So that's how I got connected to it. But I think I also faced a lot. I mean, you know, at the time there were so many voices being like, Frank Gary can't even make a diagram, you know, like Louis Kahn is like the champion and Frank Gary is a fake. So I liked being in that rebel mode too, the rebel camp. Yeah, that was a struggle for us at the <laughs> for reviews at the University of Oregon. But it's interesting that your uh, vision for this advertisement, I mean, I, I think it just expresses that kind of unconventional look at how to solve a problem that you were probably uh, uh, instilled with as a, as a child. One of you mentioned that you played basketball. That was something that made me really question your abilities or your sanity. I mean, the, the fact that you could juggle architecture school and be on the University of Oregon Ducks basketball team simultaneously, I think. And you got everything done. I mean, you always had a finished uh, finished project. I'm curious about that because, I mean, most students at school at that time couldn't barely had enough time to just go home. But you managed to travel around with the team and play basketball, which is usually more than any student can handle. Looking back at that now, do you think that helped you out? Do you think it held you back? I mean, I always emphasize the value of teamwork, you know, when I get my kids uh, joining teams and, and learning how to work well with others, because I, th I think that there's a lot of value that you can take into your the rest of your life. So I don't know, like, can you talk about that, that like juggling those two very intense experiences in school? 
Yeah. I mean, there was a precursor to that, which I think for me was helped me do what I did when I was in school was when I graduated from high school, I had a friend, my sister actually started Bar 3, which is the fitness company. She was working at this fish processing plant in Alaska where it was basically the middle of nowhere on a beach and you had to fly in this tiny like four-seater plane and land there and then you're basically captured there for like two or three months in the summer. And the salmon would like come in and you'd stand in this line with like a full hazmat suit almost and like basically scrub the guts out of fish for like a 12-hour normal shift. And then if you wanted to make like overtime, you'd work like another six hours a day. And so you could work 18 hours, eat, sleep for four or five, and then start all over again. That's how you would like take home like a big paycheck. So I did that for two summers and it really like there's no... I mean, that's as bad as it gets, you know, like the, in terms of how unhappy, unfulfilling the work is. And yet you still are pushing yourself to like perform it. And I think from having that experience, I really felt like I can do anything. Nothing will be more punishing than that work. And so when I got to school, I had a much different set of expectations of myself relative to how much I needed to sleep, the sort of regiment of the schedule. And also, I mean, I gave up a lot. Like I didn't want to have the like, I didn't care about the like other parts of, I don't know, like social life or sounds horrible, but I was so focused that I didn't really think about it. I just worked hard all the time, nonstop. And I think that that was a, definitely a great help to like what I do now, not less so now. Now I'm a little bit more balanced. I'm not that crazy, but, but, it, but over the startup of starting this company and having to work pretty much nonstop. I mean, I think I worked, I slept for four to five hours a night and worked the rest of the time for like 20 years. And, you know, I accomplished a lot. Would I recommend that to other people? I don't know. It's hard to say, like people will say no work-life balance and all this stuff. And I'd be like, well, I'm not a good example of work-life balance. You know, I had a girlfriend one time tell me she was like, I wish you would look at me the way you look at that building. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, it's just an example of like where my focus was. Like I just was so into it. I loved it so much. But I sacrificed a lot in that path. I think my having a son and, you know, as you know, you have kids that shifted things somewhat. But I think with him, I learned to be very focused in the time that I had with him and make that time very like quality time. But I still very regimented in the way I like approach things. The other part of it is that I also am really lucky. I have almost zero stress response. So I, I, don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't get anxious. I have almost no stress. So I'm really lucky that I can work nonstop and very little do I ever feel like, oh, this is so much. Like, I just don't have that. I've never feel like overwhelmed or stress response or anxiety about anything. Like people say, oh, what keeps you up at night? I've never been kept up. I sleep every night. Amazing. So I think that's part of it is like to be able to go nonstop and feel that burden of creating so much work, but never feeling like never feeling it internally, you know, never feeling any suffering from it is just luck. I mean, I don't really know. There's nothing, no other way to explain that. I was going to ask you if you had some kind of personal practice to maintain such a calm demeanor, but I guess this, it's just in your genes. So let's quickly kind of go through the, your period between school and WeWork. I remember meeting with you a couple times in LA while you were starting up another company, um, an English uh, kind of social media translation company. And 
I remember every time I would meet with you, I would go home and I would talk to my wife and I'd say, man, that guy is like, I'm not totally convinced about his business idea, but he's got so much drive and motivation that something big is going to happen. So you started this company, English Baby, out of Tokyo. And then after that, you decided to pivot back to architecture to try to be an architect. And during that process, correct me if I'm wrong in any of these, you got a job at Jordan Parnass uh, Architects and, and part of that job is a very low entry job. Part of that job was to help build out the brand new American apparel retail shops, which was quite revolutionary at the time. I mean, very a very unconventional approach, similar a, a little bit to how WeWork has has envisioned, reinvented co-working space. This experience that you had working in architecture for a brief amount of time, did you bring anything from that into your the start of WeWork? First of all, I want to give you some credit in this whole story because you skipped. There was a part where you know you were one of the few people who started to bring technology into your work and your practice. And even though you left U of O, I was still influenced by that. And, you know, Paul was, again, part of a relatively small crew at Oregon who was trying to engage in new ways of presenting work, of communication with like 3D modeling and all of that. And so for me, I was inspired by that. And, you know, when he went to CyArk, that actually opened the door for me to like, I didn't even know what CyArk was. Like I had never heard of it. And so it helped me understand that there was a bigger, broader, you know, world out there. And I think that technology side, when I was in school, I became interested in trying to present my work in a digital way. And so I taught myself to code really just HTML and PHP in the early days, just so I could make a portfolio that was digital. And I remember, do you know the Samatar building in Culver City, the Eric Cohen Moss, which I know who you worked with for a lot. I tried to model that building in this ancient design software design workshop that we used to use back then and you know it has all these curves and i mean it's a crazy but i was the only one who would be stupid enough to try to model that in that software but then i had this file that was this at the time and it doesn't sound big now but it was like a 300 megabyte file which had to be broken up into like three different zip disks and i remember i had this great idea that i was gonna make this animated walkthrough of the samatar building and what I didn't understand was that not everywhere has as fast a internet connection as the university did. So I put something, it was like an animated GIF with like 300 screens on or whatever. And, and that file was like a 40 megabyte file, just the animated GIF. So the first time I went to present it, I like went and I say, let me show it on my website. And I click and the thing is like loading, loading. I mean, it prob to load like the 40 megabyte file back then, like took, I mean, my, the whole time, the internship I was applying for, like well, waiting for it to load. But Paul set an example uh, for those of you who know his history in actually bringing, you know, technology and creating, you know, connection. And I think for me, that was a, something that I felt interested in and it was an inspiration for me. So originally the background of starting English Baby, which was, again, I wish we had the words because it was a social network for people learning English as a second language. We didn't have those words back then. We described it in a lot of different ways and it never fully met its potential, I don't think. But through that process, I really learned what does it take to start a business? What is it? You know, I gave myself a mini MBA in that process. So when I got to, I finally like dropped everything. I'm like, fuck this. I got to get out of here. I'm moving to New York. And so I got this job for $10 an hour, basically as a junior draftsman, even though I didn't know how to draft at all. I never even used like AutoCAD before, but I faked it, faked my resume. Um, 
<laughs> Don't tell Jordan Parnas. <laughs> yeah, it's funny actually now. Like what? I mean, he got lucky and went. I was horrible at drafting and horrible at anything to do with working in an architecture studio. But I was really good at the business side. And so American Apparel was going through, you know, we're working on their first couple of stores. And then they went, they're like, Dove, the founder was like, you know, let's grow. And um, we basically got the like license to go out and do retail development for them. So I was traveling all over the place, going to pretty much every city east of like California and negotiating leases, location scouting, you know, overseeing design, the design process and kind of getting all the stores. And so that was just the capacity that a normal architecture intern level person would never have. And so it was just total luck that that happened that way because I, I got an experience of doing a global rollout going from whatever zero to or three to 170 stores in a few years. And that's just a once in a lifetime experience. So that as a prep, the design from architecture school as a background, then the digital self-taught starting English baby, and then the American apparel with the real estate, that formula allowed us to start WeWork for very low price because I could sort of do it all. Like our first lease, I negotiated by myself with no lawyer. Our first website I built by myself with no consultant. Like our first IT wiring, me and my little brother put it in ourselves. First time we had to like program a router and switches, we went on YouTube and like figured it out and then did it ourselves. The first like punch down of internet cabling, you know, we just, you know, so that and like the first QuickBooks we set up, I did it. Like I had sort of done it all to some extent and being able to launch a business, do the logo, do the branding, do the architecture design, do the accounting, do the legal, like not many people get that. And so being able to do that pushed us a long way very quickly that, you know, was probably unique to me in the world at the time. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily consider the previous startups and initiatives that you did as as failures. But one of the things that I always tell people, younger architects, that I mean, it's, it's so good to fail because, I mean, as long as you interpret that as a learning experience that you can then take somewhere else. And it sounds like you had many invaluable learning experiences that helped you position yourself in a place where you can start a multi-billion dollar company like WeWork. Okay. So um, jumping into WeWork, I'm sure most of you are aware of WeWork. So co-working space has clearly been around for longer than WeWork has, but you have completely disrupted that. What do you credit to that disruption? I mean, what is unique about WeWork that none of the other co-working spaces were able to, to offer? Well, the first thing I think comes from this, again, it's like trying to understand the why behind this is always interesting because everyone can say, oh, but someone else was doing it. Why were you successful and they weren't? And I think the intention and the reason why we started it and that being authentic to us, I think is important because we were in an environment in Brooklyn where there was a lot of cool people doing cool stuff. Like there was the architects and the like pornography studio and the hat maker and the musician and the tech startup and the whatever fabric distributor and even an electrician with their stores. Like you had so much diversity in this cool area of Brooklyn, but one, everyone was behind their own solid door and you didn't know what was going on, you know, inside. And two, there was no connective communal space. There was really nowhere where people could assemble and convene. The other part of it was the service like sucked. The workspace in those old Brooklyn warehouse buildings, which are so cool and have that startup energy and spirit, 
actually working there in a lot of ways would suck because the air conditioning would be bad or the internet, you know, cabling. There's lots of reasons that just a hassle. So our intent was very organic. It was a side project really to start was to say, how can we just help solve these problems for people? Because we're tired of seeing our friends inconvenienced by all these things that are terrible. And there's probably like a little money to make there if you can provide a higher level of service. And then the learning was, wow, once you put people in a space where they have the opportunity to connect, so much more comes from that. And that's really where we got really excited was how can we create environments where people are more open, where they do have a chance to meet people in a more organic way, like nothing against events like this, like they're great. But at the same time, you don't show up in the same way to like a networking event as you do in just your normal day to day. And so, and a lot of people are like, could be nervous in an environment like this, or, you know, they're going to come in and stand on the side. Like if I came to an event like this, I would like not talk to one person, you know, I would like come and get the free food, stand on the side until the event comes, sit down and then, you know, leave as soon as possible because I would just be too nervous to talk to anyone. Right. So like a lot of people, you know, if you're not the outgoing type. And so we wanted to create a, a way for that to just feel a lot more loose, a lot more organic, and also to be inclusive of like all people and all business types. Because while there was co-working before, it was much more oriented towards tech and tech startups and, you know, a lot of people, engineers with their headphones on and stuff. So we were, we, the whole reason it's called WeWork was we wanted to go against the, both the premise of exclusivity, like you have to, because accelerators and stuff, it's like, oh, you have to be backed by some venture, blah, 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 or you have to have this level of experience there's all these reasons why you couldn't fit and again that goes to again the definition of like entrepreneurship and who who's who can be a part of this and what are the qualifications and all that we want to just erase all of that stuff and just say come on in like let's figure it out together and whoever you are whatever you do that richness and of that diversity will be what makes it interesting and i think in the first few buildings when I mean, you could literally walk down the hall and over like 400 people there would be no replication there's like one attorney one accountant, one charity that does yoga at this school, at these schools, one charity that's trying to like solve the water problem, like one tech startup doing this, one, you know, architect focused on this industry, but it was like not one repeat. So the richness of a community like that, that's so diverse was just, it didn't exist in that way. So, and I think that's still part of the formula. The the, the bigger question we have now is that we've engaged with much bigger companies. You know, our biggest customers now are Amazon and Facebook and Bank of America. And, you know, so that whole evolution is a bigger, like how that works in real life is where we're at now. And that's, that's really the future to figure out. So how does the architecture and design help brand WeWork and create a space that people prefer to work in? I mean, based on my experience visiting WeWork offices, it has a very almost a domestic feel like it's very comfortable. It feels as soon as you walk in, it feels like the kind of place that you can just chill out wherever and then get to work when you need. How did that architectural design language develop? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing, I mean, if you were to go back in history, there was there were two fundamental things we we're trying to accomplish. One was every building on a corner so that you would always have light coming in from two directions. And we just, you know, there's so many buildings where it's like long and narrow and the windows are at one end and it feels sort of not, you know, who gets the windows doesn't feel democratic and also, also they're dark. So we don't always do that now, but that was like for our real estate team, like every building on a corner. 
the other that residential vibe was definitely i mean again at the time if you go back to eight nine years ago the where design was was like there was so much in the sort of boutique hotel industry that was really warm and like welcoming and like you know roman and williams were doing the ace hotel and like you had this like shift away from the more i don't know what you call it like high spatial design focus and more like the materials and the warmth and the comfort. And so when we did the first building, it was like exposed brick and exposed iron columns and stuff. And I put in just schoolhouse electric fixtures in the offices, you know, and they're just like, and at the time, again, incandescent lights. And like, there was people who they'd come in and they go like, wait, when are you going to put the lights in? (laughs) And I'd be like, "What, what, what do you mean? And they're like, well, like their expectation of what an office light was, wasn't there. And like, it was just weird that that shift now, it just doesn't seem that profound, but where that kind of design was happening was in restaurants and like the cool auto garage turned into a restaurant and stuff like that. So to put that into a workspace at the time was really different and having that warmth that like, just it's casual, it like feels comfortable. And we, nothing against commercial furniture companies, but we were like, we'll never use commercial furniture. We're buying stuff that any person furnishing their apartment would buy. And, you know, I think that familiarity makes people feel good. And I think it's great. There's been a major change in commercial furniture. People are getting a lot better. So that was the third or second. And then the third, that, and this is something that I think is a much more interesting idea in a bigger sense is I've worked super hard to try to figure out how can you reduce threshold conditions. So you know, learning more about, say, like UX and you know, why did Amazon become so successful? It's like reducing thresholds and decision making. The more clicks you have, the more chance you have to lose your audience. It's the same way for our design is like if you had to decide to go to a common area, like you'd find a reason not to go. So you have like big buildings. And again, this is changing too, which is awesome. But like you have big apartment buildings where they invest so much money into this cool amenities floor on the roof or the second floor and they put in all this cool stuff. But you go there, it's always empty every time, you know, because no one in the threshold, it's like, okay, I'm going on the elevator. Do I go to my apartment or do I go to the common area? Okay, you lost at least 50%, if not 90 in that decision. Or you're sitting on your couch and it's like, well, I have a 32-inch TV. There is like a 70-inch downstairs, but then my refrigerator wouldn't be next to me. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not actually going to go there. So all those decisions, you're losing the audience. And so we've tried a lot in our study of like floor plans to say, how can we make erase the threshold conditions as much as possible and then make as many people flow through the same space at the same time. So all the use cases that we can get into the same spot create this like vibrance of energy that people seem to to like. As I recall, in the earlier days, your title at WeWork was chief creative officer, but now you are chief cultural officer. And I know that culture is a big part of WeWork. And from what I understand, you're really driving that. You've developed a culture OS that I'd love to hear about. So maybe you could talk a little bit about this transition to chief culture officer, what culture means to WeWork and how that culture, WeWork culture extends from both WeWork staff to the, your huge 250,000 member community. Yeah. And a little bit about that culture OS that you've developed. Well, I'm wearing the t-shirt because, you know, I'm a marketer and operationalized love is like a whatever brand statement for our culture product, not yet launched, but we're using it internally. And it sounds kind of like a, like a, a weird concept, the idea that you could operationalize love, operationalize culture, but 
it came from really this idea of how can you do something intentional? People think about culture a lot as like this thing that floats around as an ephemeral and it's made up of all these weird things that no one fully understands. And through a lot of study and discussion with smart people, as well as all of our team members, I came to the conclusion that you can actually manage all of the inputs that create culture. It's not easy, but you can try and in order to achieve achieve an output. And so that includes in a company everything from, you know, the benefits, the compensation, the events, the way that leaders show up, the communication platforms, the do you use Slack or whatever, like what's your email habit? What's your meeting habits? Like, I mean, I can go like, how do you give back? What's your citizenship? How do you show up in the world outside of your walls? Like there's so many things that we've looked at that we think can actually be managed and and proactively affected in order to create the culture that we want. And so that's what we're doing for ourselves. We actually have a culture team. So we have, I think, 12 people, maybe, I forget, maybe 15 who who just proactively work on different aspects of, of culture. And then the organizing system that we use to manage that is what we call Culture OS. And it works. I mean, it's it's still, it's not like a fully realized software platform or anything, but as like an organizational methodology and a way that we approach it, it works really well. And what's happening that's really cool now is that we're getting the opportunity to, to use it with other companies. So companies are coming to us who are in a state of transition. You know, a lot of companies are going through digital transformation or they want to shift from to an innovation culture or, and a lot of times, you know, there's other consultants who do some aspect of that or they develop some deck or platform and you know say here's the plan and then they like walk away what's different for us is that because we operate space as a service we can actually we give the space and we are providing all the facilities management and the actual space as a service and then what we're layering onto it with our community managers is now a, a culture management as well and um, that's early stage, but it's really cool because community managers in a workplace play a role that I think is we don't fully understand yet, but is really powerful. And because it's not like HR, it's almost like a peer, but it's like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it's something that we're really excited about because we're doing it in some companies and we've seen already the positivity in terms of unleashing a lot of what they would want to achieve, but haven't really figured it out yet. So one of the cool things about space, I mean, for all of you who are designers, you know, if you put people into a new space, they can change. Like people are so hard to change. They're stuck in their same patterns. You know, you give them a new space and then all of a sudden they can become someone different. But there's so many other layers to what needs to happen next. And I don't think that's been really figured out. A lot of people do change management. A lot of people have programs that they think are doing it, but they're not comprehensive. They don't usually address how does the citizenship program work. There's so many other parts to it. So I think that's the world we're entering. And for me, that's just super interesting because I think we're doing pretty good on the space side. That's why the shift from the chief creative officer to the chief culture officer is that the space side, I think we're, we've got pretty well figured out. The culture part is much bigger challenge. Well, I have so many questions about that, but as we are nearing the end, I first want to give an opportunity to let the audience ask any questions. So you talked about reducing thresholds within physical space, which I think is kind of fascinating and how UX has influenced that a lot. So I'm just curious, specifically in co-working with such a diverse 
group of individuals, as you said, like 400 people without repeating. How do you develop a, a user journey for such a diverse group? Like an architect works differently than a lawyer. So I'm interested to hear how you guys kind of approach that. That's a great question. I mean, the actual inside of the workspace, you know, we've left it pretty open, like the way people use. I mean, the great thing about our business model is that we give very little and it sounds bad, but like we give very little inside of the workspace and people determine that for themselves, how they want to work. So our job is to try to figure out how to draw people out of being in that mode of just, I'm here to do my own thing. And so a lot of times, I mean, again, like in a simple sense, imagine this is happening in a we workspace, right? Like you had to cross a big threshold to get here today. Like, thank you for showing up. I appreciate it. Because I know whatever else you were doing, you had to totally interrupt your schedule to make it. And that's a hard thing. I'm sure there was another 50 people who would have liked to be here, but they weren't able to do that. So if we were in a we workspace right now, there'd be 400 people over there who are working and there would be all the food and coffee and all that stuff. And they would be like, oh, I need to go get a glass of water. And they'd walk up and get it. And then they would be like, oh, I wonder what's going on over there. Be like, well, that guy's super cool, has cool glasses. What's he up to? You know, and then they would hang out for a while, right? And be like drawn in by this opportunity to have the disruption, which if you would have sent them an invitation, they probably would have said no to. Or they would have looked on their calendar and like figured out a reason why not. So that's part of that premise again with threshold is like, can you make it this like free flowing stuff's going on all the time you come into it come out of it without having to make like a decision you know doesn't mean there's not programming with invitations it's just that trying to bring more people into it in a more um, in a looser way is the goal and i think in some places we do it really well like there's some buildings where it's just like whoa this is crazy it's a constant flow of just energy some places it works less and the cool thing is because we're doing so many we're opening you know, now anywhere from 30 to 50 per month globally. So think of like who gets to in the world, release new versions, 50 a month to try again and try again and try again. And we have a research team who's constantly studying these things and trying to figure out how people are using them. So it's pretty cool. Thank you for this today. It's a great story. I want to ask you about when you mentioned work-life balance, which could also be described as the time we spend doing things for money versus the time we spend doing things for ourselves. And actually, I think you mentioned that in relation to your story about architecture school, which is complicated because we spend our entire time there doing everything for ourselves. And then we leave there and we begin doing things for money. So we never really learned the difference between how to balance those two things. So in the current trend where offices blur the line between work and everything else, WeWork is, I think, recognized as kind of a poster child for these new kinds of workspaces. And I want to know your thoughts about this trend and if you think it's possible to build a culture where the space encourages people to preserve the time that they spend doing things for themselves. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's very personal to me, that question, because I've tried to figure out more. I would never use the term balance because that assumes that it's like this, right? But more that really that it's a spectrum. Like I say work-life balance as an old-fashioned concept because I think now for most of us, it's like a spectrum of like your, what degree are you involved in one or the other? Because your phone's always there. So are you fully not working and how often are you fully not working? And 
So we're trying to figure it out because we know that people need the opportunity to go to different places within that spectrum. So like we started this concept called Rise, which is a wellness studio, which includes spa. And I'm not into spas, but other people like this relaxation you get from whatever hot water, cold water and sauna and all that stuff. So we want to make, is, can that be a part of it where we could actually ask people to detach within from the workday and then go to another part of the building and do that for a while and then come back? We're, we want to figure that out because it's something that is is a it's a, I think everyone struggles with with again the threshold condition of like I gotta go to the gym after work or like if it's always like calendarized then it's hard to um, I don't know it's hard I don't know the answer except to say that like we're interested in the flow of energy and ultimately you'd have a lot of people who have enough opportunity to discover that flow within themselves because all the options are like laid out in front of them again in a no threshold condition. So like in workspace, you know, there's this idea that like you get whatever you need at the right time, right? So if you and I are talking and then we need a private area, we look over and then there's the little like private nook for us to talk or we want a whiteboard and we like look over there and we like start working on the whiteboard or we need a meeting room and we draw five people in and it's all just like at our fingertips. To me, that like same feeling would be like for what you need in life, it would always just be there. Like you just like flow into it. It's like, oh, I, I feel like I need to go meditate for 20 minutes and I'm just going to like float over there in the corner and there's this quiet spot for me to do it, you know, like rather than having to be like, okay. I got a schedule on my calendar, the 20 minutes for meditation, which fuck that. I want to answer email on my phone, you know? So I don't know, but that's, that's, that's an aspiration. And it's why we're doing a lot of different stuff. It's why, I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of wild, like we're, we're, we're in a, a phase and we're lucky to be able to try a lot of different things and investing million dollars in a wellness concept. Um, most people wouldn't do, but why not? We, we have a, a bigger picture in mind. I had a question about culture because you're a global company and you have businesses all across the world and you're focused on culture. How challenging is it that what works in New York City obviously isn't going to work in a place like Frankfurt, Germany, where people space is more important, individual space. So is there a model that or is there something that you do that makes that successful or is it just more of the research that happens? I'm just curious how challenging that is for your company. There's a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, some of them are very practical, like the way people exist, you know, completely different in, say, eating habits and collaboratively. You know, the first time we we built the space in Amsterdam, we built it the way we do in the U.S. And we didn't know that, like, everyone would eat at the same time. They all wanted to share the same, like, bread and cheese or whatever, right? So we had to learn on the fly from that in the next building or the next floor or whatever, do that better. You could say that same thing for a lot of other places. In terms of the WeWork spaces themselves, that part of it, we've tried to research more in advance rather than building, messing it up and having to fix it after. But those things have been, I would say it's really like what we found much more is how much the same people are. Like, and I don't know the exact formula, it's 90-10 or 80-20, but it's some ratio in there where it's like, like for example, when we first were only in the US and we were going to London and I was over there talking to people, you know, we're trying to find architects who would stamp the drawings and stuff. And they were like, no one in London will work with a glass wall between them and another company who they don't know. They're like, this will fail 100%. There's no chance. And I was like, oh. And I heard that from like multiple people that that was just not going to work because 
they just know people were too uptight for that. And it was kind of too late for us to change. So we did it anyway. And of course it like London is our second biggest market and it's like, we're growing there so fast. We can't even keep up with the demand. So clearly while people might think things are different, there is some things that are fundamentally human about the opportunity for connection that people really want. Um, I do think the right people, I've had a lot, in the case of, of London, again, I've had a lot of feedback where people will come up to me and unsolicited say, I don't know how you did it, but the people at WeWork are the nicest people we've ever met, or the nicest people we've ever been around in London. Now, is that like, did we just happen to get the nicest people in London to move into our buildings? I think not. I think what we created was an environment where people felt completely different and they changed. You know, so that's the interesting thing is what's the formula for establishing that culture? Is it like, is it the collection of people that you're around? Is it the way the space supports it? Is the way the vibe? Is it the intent? It's all of those things together. But that said, I mean, there's still incredible challenges with like things we still have yet to understand. You know, China is way complex. Japan is like crazy complex because so much is under the surface and like no one will even tell you if you're they don't like stuff you know i mean so who knows we have a lot to learn but it's just awesome to be in that and be able to like examine and compare and you know get the like very apples to apples like you have the same environment but yet completely different cultures what happens in each one so um i feel like this is where it's like we work we thought it was like this 20 billion dollar company or 40 if you read the last post which may or may not be true but we're like at the very start of all this stuff. Like we're in like, we're, we're, we have 250 locations, which is like 250,000 people, which is like zero essentially in terms of how much impact we want to have. And if we have 2 million, that would be like, oh wow, 2 million customers globally. That sounds like a big number. If we had 20 million, would that sound crazy? Like not really for how big the scope of say commercial office space is. So imagine we're like in the realm of someday having 20 million where we're at now is like so little and we have so much more to learn along the way to go from 250,000 to 20 million. So I think that's what's so exciting for us is that we're like, you know, we're in all these conversations and we get to hire awesome people to engage in these challenges, let alone what we can do in communities, what we can do in cities. So anyway, lots of um, cool stuff to figure out. Was your acquisition of Meetup last year more of a growth opportunity or an investment in going back to the culture conversation? That's a good question. A big part of what we've always been sort of criticized for is that our limit is like inside of our walls. And so Meetup, a big part of our intrigue and interest in Meetup was they're convening people around the world around things that we find to be important, which is disconnecting from technology and connecting in real life. And we feel like we shared that from the standpoint of the value we want to create for our customers. And so there was just a really close alignment to what we we're trying to achieve in the world, but they had already figured out a mechanism to do it in a way that we hadn't. We didn't have any mechanism to convene people outside of our walls, let alone the struggle for a lot of meetup organizers is to find good space. So we thought if we can bring our facility to manage space, to a business that doesn't know how to do that, that there would be a good synergy there. But again, that stuff is all like so future oriented, you know, like if five years from now we have that figured out, that will be great, which is the same thing I would say for like Flatiron School. You know, we acquired Flatiron School. Why does that make sense? Well, in the long term, we want to reinvent education but do we have to do it now? We can get started with Flatiron School and, and start to plant the seeds for that, but we've got time to figure it out. 
When you embarked upon this journey, it was a more or less a, a reaction to a need in Brooklyn, and you used words like authentic and organic, uh, which sometimes are contrary to. I guess they present themselves as scalar issues as you scale up uh, with the success that you've you've now attained. What's the concern that you have that authenticity and kind of this organicism continues to exist in the neighborhoods that you create internationally? So I'm going to restate that question in a different way. When we were about 60 people and we had maybe, I don't know, five locations or six locations in the city, one of our team members, we I think it was our two-year anniversary. And one of our team members, you know, raised her hand and she said, you know, we work, we've been so successful because we're so cool. Like everyone knows us as like the cool startup company. She's like, you know, what's going to happen if that changes? And when I heard that, I was like, one, I don't want to be known as the cool company. Like, because if you're not cool anymore, then that's going to suck. But I didn't answer that way. What I said was, is, you know, you guys are cool the community management teams, you guys are cool people. And if you stay cool, then we'll be cool. Which sounds really simplistic, but it's actually really the heart of our business is that we have real deep relationships with our members. Our community managers are in living with them every single day. And they're very, that we are training them to be their authentic selves in that, in that environment, in that arrangement. They're not showing up with some, you know, formulaic customer service guide. They're there to build relationships with the members of those buildings. And they're there to, to try to empower them to succeed. And so it's our job to build these community management teams who build those authentic relationships that do become meaningful to the members. All the rest of it is just like icing on the cake beyond that. Because if the, the our customers walk into our buildings every single day in a high need state and we are engaging with them and fulfilling their needs over and over and over again. It's not like a hotel where it's like they're with you for a short period of time or, you know, retail, but there's no, you know, an airline you fly on once a day or once a week or once a month. Every day we're in a relationship with our members. And so we have the ability to build value over and over again every single day. And that's what we have to continue to do. Like as long as we build value for you, for a member every day, then you'll keep coming back. And if you don't want to come back because we didn't provide value to you, then you can go somewhere else. So I feel confident that we're going to continue to work super hard to provide that value because that we have a huge team that's dedicated to trying to make people happy. Like literally, like our research team is trying to make the members of our who walk into our buildings feel happy, excited, uplifted. Like everyone wants to feel that. So, and that's our job to create that for people. I hope we keep figuring out how to get better at it, not worse. We'll never get worse at it, I hope. How deliberate are the types and of spaces and the types of buildings that you choose to, uh, that WeWork chooses to repurpose? Because to me, I feel like there's really something to be said to the large scale building, say the Lord and Taylor building here that you purchased. And I wonder if, say, is there a strategy in maybe in 20 or 30 years that WeWork has, that WeWork thinks, oh, you know, we're going to have this language of, you know, relic buildings of spaces that no longer worked economically, we're going to repurpose them and uh, preserve them? That's a great question. I think there's been, there was a time when I thought that our business relied on the like cool character of old buildings. And the first time we had to do like all glass 
new tower, I was really freaked out because I was like, you know, I mean, we all know what it feels like to have this like tactile accessibility where it's like things are imperfect and you know the floor has character and, you know, what will it feel like if it's just all brand new? And so I, I remember one of our buildings in London, which is going to be, I think there's 3000 members in, in Moorgate in London. And it's like really brand new construction. It was very crisp. And in London, you know, they put in this like these drop ceilings, which are very hard to get out because they i don't know a lot of stuff's built into them so i was like this might be our downfall is if we can't keep getting these old historic buildings and you know those buildings in london were awesome and they have the same energy the same spirit so i don't think that there's a necessity for a certain typology we are building our first ground up building in the navy yard which we you know i basically designed on a napkin and then it's about to be done and i think that building while it's not 100% what I would say it would be idealized for a WeWork building, it's like has a lot of things that are that that you would want. So I think that's a potential that we'll be doing more ground up where we actually get to fully design. We have one in Seattle that's a We Live WeWork combined with Rise Wellness and Fitness in it with cool retail on the ground floor. Like So we've gotten the chance to program things in a way. But, you know, I think the important thing from a from a design perspective that we've learned is much more the success comes much more from the vibe we establish inside and whether that vibe is true to what to what we want than what it's made out of you know what the structure is what the materials are and we're in every type of building everywhere from the little building of 350 members and the coolest part of berlin to the business district in you know the super cool financial district of whatever city you know what i mean so i think we can do it all All right. Well, I think um, what you're doing is representing some of the most exciting changes in in this industry, in uh, this industry being far beyond just co-working, clearly touches on architecture, development, culture, branding. So I'm really excited to watch how you continue to grow. Really excited to see how Bjarke Ingels, new, newly uh, titled chief architect of WeWork, will will start to show its presence. Something that we didn't get to talk to uh, to you today, but uh, hopefully next time. And thanks so much for for joining us. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Miguel. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode next week, where we'll share a conversation I had with Sharon Johnston and Mark Lee of Johnston Mark Lee that we recorded live during the LA Design Festival earlier this month. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach out to us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks and talk to you next time.